Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it's great to have you back here for another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show that we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, Felony Friday focuses each and every single week on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. Now, we have two other shows on the Lions of Liberty podcast every Monday. We have a show hosted by Mark Clare, where Mark interviews leaders in the libertarian movement. In fact, recently he's been interviewing leaders in the Libertarian Party, specifically. He's had a couple great guests on, so be sure to check out his interviews. Mark also does host our roundtable discussions most of the time, our very, very popular libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor. So if you're new to listening to the podcast, if you haven't heard an episode of Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor, I really encourage you to go back, go to our archive, and check one out. Every Wednesday, we have our show hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's called Electric Liberty Land. It is your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. Brian rotates between. He'll do some solo shows. He'll bring on guests. But it's always a nice mixture of uh, current events, liberty, culture. And you know Brian's a funny guy. He's a comedian, so it's a lot of fun. Definitely check it out. You can get all three of these shows. Because why would you want just one of them? You want all three? Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss a show. Today's episode is the 113th episode of Felony Friday. That means you'll be able to find the show notes with links and notes to everything that I'm going to talk about with my guest today at lionsofliberty.com slash FF113. Now, my guest today, Aaron Gunter, I'm going to introduce him in just a minute here, but I met Aaron Gunter through today's sponsor. The sponsor of today's show is RDAP Dan, Dan Wise, and uh, you're going to love Aaron's story today. I don't want to go too much into it, but Dan Wise, of course, has a prison consulting business. You might ask yourself, why would I want a prison consultant? If you or you know someone you know and love is facing a federal case, then you know this is a very, very stressful time, and you're going to be faced with confusion, all kinds of crazy stuff going on, very unfamiliar. Really, unfortunately, your lawyer is not equipped to help you out with navigating that system. Your lawyer is equipped to some degree to help you out from a legal standpoint, but even in, the, in that degree, there's a lot that they can't do. Now, a prison consultant, they're going to help you qualify for sentence reduction programs. They're going to help you avoid common mistakes that'll zap your chances of early release, and they'll help you keep a handle on the stress and anxiety during this process. So guys, Dan also has a very, very good YouTube channel where he does a bunch of shows every week. He interviews people who have been to prison and, and have had success after prison. Um, Dan really has a unique perspective and has a great handle on the prison system and the criminal justice system. So you can get a free consultation with Dan and his team by visiting lionsofliberty.com slash RDAP. That's lionsofliberty.com slash R-D-A-P. My guest today on Felony Friday is Aaron Gunter. Aaron has accomplished a great deal in his life, and 
he has a he has a special story because he's overcome a lot of obstacles, a lot of obstacles that he actually probably put in his own way, a lot of mistakes that he made. From 2003 to 2015, Aaron was on a, a bad path. Uh, he was addicted to meth and was committing crimes by selling drugs, stealing cars, and then eventually uh, being convicted of conspiracy to commit bank fraud. During this time, Aaron spent more than seven years in prison. Now, after prison, Aaron is a successful firefighter, he has a family, uh, and really the reason I wanted to have him on is to talk about his entire time, this transition from his early life to bad decisions, the time in prison, and his path and his success after prison. So Aaron, thank you so much for coming on Felony Friday. Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. It's good to have you here, man, and you know, I want to talk about the mistakes you made, your time in prison, um, how you rebuilt your life after those mistakes and after that time in prison. But before we do that, I'd like to start out with uh, having my guests talk a little bit about their background and uh, where they grew up. So my background is I grew up in a, a rural town, small place called Western Washington, um, pretty much kicked rocks on all the roads around there. I grew up with knowing your neighbor and um, kind of just a wholesome life. And then slowly that kind of led into other things as I grew a little bit older. So you grew up in, uh, I guess, sort of like, was it like the American dream type ab- atmosphere, white picket fences? Is that a... Yeah, it was real similar. You know, I played baseball uh, growing up, involved in school sports and activities. It seemed like everybody in our community kind of knew each other, um, playing hide and go seek on the streets and chasing each other, uh, bikes, groups of kids riding bikes up and down the street, um, kind of like an anomaly compared to what it is today. So you're you're having this, you know, really nice, safe upbringing. Um, At what point did you have your first experience, your first uh, time you even you even saw drugs? Um, It was with my older brother. I was, I believe, in third or fourth grade. Uh, He set me down and, and told me that he did drugs. And at that time, I couldn't really grasp my mind around what he was talking about, and uh, he had introduced me to marijuana for the first time at that time. And then I really hadn't had any exposure to it from that point on. Uh, I was 16 years old, and I uh, raced BMX in the World Championships down in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I remember when I came back, um, the doctor had prescribed me. I broke my collarbone in the main event, and the doctor had prescribed me some oxycodone and I remember my dad handed me the bottle and told me to take one, and I took three. And at that time, my dad kind of got upset with me. And later on, it kind of dawned on me that I liked that feeling. I think that was my first insight that there was something there to be uh, to keep an eye on. So you you took three. Had you had you taken any before that, or was it the first time you'd ever taken oxycodone? No, that was the first time I'd ever taken them, and I just, I don't know why I did it. I just did it, and uh, I liked the way it made me feel, so from that point on, uh, my dad was a little bit stricter on (laughs) handing me the bottle, and instead he would hand me what I needed to take, but that was very clear to me that there was something wrong, that I shouldn't have been doing that. So did you realize at that point that um, that was wrong, or was that, were you just, you just liked the feeling and just wanted? I believe, I believe at that time I, I noticed something was wrong. Because uh, then it progressively led from that point on up to where I started abu- abusing different substances in high school. Uh, I completely quit bike racing. 
uh, started going to parties, and then it just kind of led from there. So did, did you end up graduating from high school? No, I, no, I did not. So how did things sort of, sort of spiral uh, out of control for you there? Uh, pretty much from that time, uh, I, I kind of took a, a serious disappointment and blow when I, when I wrecked out and uh, broke my collarbone at the World Championships. And it kind of, I lost all my ambition, so to speak. And then that little exposure to a substance, substance that kind of took that feeling away, I started seeking that out um, in other forms. And, you know, I found, of course, smoking pot. Uh, drinking booze, taking ecstasy, doing other things that happen at high school parties. And it became more of an issue to me where it didn't, some other people could do it on the weekends and be just fine where me, I had to do it all the time to try to suppress those feelings I had. I, I just want to come back to, to the, uh, the crash you had where you broke your collarbone. Did that prevent you from ever racing again? Or, or was that something you, that you could have continued to race after healing? Yeah, I, I could have continued to race. Um, making it to the World Championships is by invite only, so I felt like everything I'd worked for up to that point just was down the drain, which in reality it wasn't, but in my mind it was. It was. Do you think that played into uh, you, you seeking out um, drugs and seeking out trying, trying to dull um, the pain you were feeling from that, the emotional pain? I absolutely 100% believe that. Yeah, so... Things, I guess, escalated pretty quickly for you in a way where, where your life sort of spun out of control. When was the first time that you got in trouble with the law? Uh, I was 17, getting ready to turn 18, and I had got charged with delivery of a controlled substance, which was methamphetamines. And, what, and at what, that time, what's the backstory? What, what happened? Uh, so one of my sister's friends had came over to the house, and I gave him... A small quantity of meth. Well, he got pulled over, showed over signs of sleep depression, and uh, had told the officer where he got it. At that time, I didn't know any better, and I told the officer, yeah, I didn't sell him nothing. I gave it to him. <laughs> and that that's constituted delivery, and I went to prison for it. So how you, you actually, so your first time with no prior record, how much meth was it again? Uh, it was about $20 worth. $20 worth of, worth of meth. Um, you're convicted, and uh, what did they sentence you to? I got 24 months on DOSA, which I served a year and a day. Year and a day in prison. And that was a felony at that point? Yes, that was a felony. Okay, so you have a felony on your record. So I, I just want to just dwell on this for a minute because um, this, is, this is how messed up our criminal justice system is, right? Um, you have somebody like yourself who obviously is – having a hard time making some bad decisions, not going down the right path, um, instead of finding a way to, to help in some way, to uh, try to give you some uh, assistance to, to get off of, uh, of uh, the, the drugs you're using, to try to give you some opportunities um, to uh, take you away from that path. The criminal justice system comes down and stamps you with a felony, which you know most people look at that and they write you off for, for the rest of your life. And, uh, essentially make things way harder on, on people like yourself. But sorry, I had to go on that little, uh, little side rant there. Yeah, it's definitely true. So from, from that point, you spend a little over a year in prison. You got a felony on your record. Um, what, what was that one year in prison uh, like for you? Um, I was petrified at first uh, just because it was so new being away from my family. You're going into 
an environment that you're completely unprepared for at that age. I mean, at, to me, I was still learning kind of the ropes of adulthood and how to even act. Uh, and then you get thrown into that environment and it really kind of shapes your personality. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate that my dad had instilled good morals and ethics in me because it's so easy. I've seen other people my age that were uh, persuaded into these different groups or whatever to be kind of clicked up with people for protection when in reality it's it's not needed if you just stick to yourself and do what you're supposed to do. And that's pretty much how I made it through. Yeah, I've heard other people talk about that, you know, spending time in prison, it's it's sort of, it, it's really not counterintuitive, but you wouldn't think of it this way. But sometimes time in prison can, you know, it makes people become more personally responsible and they end up, um, you know, being more personally responsible, but looking out for others, not to, uh, you know, not to do things that would, obviously for, for reasons because of, of repercussions, not to make others angry, sort of almost putting others first in a way, um, as a way to mitigate from, you know, making life harder on, on, on yourself. And a lot of people wouldn't think of that when they think of the, uh, the prison experience. Um, so you spend a year and a day in prison, you get out. Um, did you have support from your family, um, friends, um, significant other at that point in time when you got out? Yes. My family was a huge support. They always have been, they've, they've never, um, neglected that in any fashion shape uh or whatsoever my whole entire life um i i couldn't thank them enough for the support i wouldn't be where i'm at today if it wasn't for the support of my family um after i'd got out of prison uh i i harassed this local asphalt owner business owner um multiple times for a job and uh i showed up his i knew his son and he knew my background that i was a felon and um, he didn't really want to hire me. Well, I kept going to his work before they would start out for the day. So they started rolling out of their office by eight o'clock. So I'd show up at seven o'clock with my lunch pail full of food, ready to go. And he turned me away for about two weeks. And, uh, it was on a Sunday and I just left church and I was at the car wash, getting my truck washed and was going to start job hunting like I had been for the last two weeks. And I ran into him and his son at the car wash and he asked me where I'd just come from, and I told him, and he said, are you still looking for a job? I said, yeah. So he ended up hiring me, and it's kind of funny. I ended up working for him for about a year, and then we I was on a job with him, and he was calling another subcontractor to come in and do some striping for him. And in my mind, I was thinking, how hard is it to put some stripes down on asphalt? And I said, if I ever started a business, would, would you hire me? He said, well, if you're licensed, bonded, and insured, of course. Absolutely, I wouldn't. You'd have to do good work. And I said, okay. So... I saved up money for the next three or four months and gave him my two weeks notice and started my business. And I worked independently for about a month and a half. And I just happened to be doing one of his best friend's parking lots unbeknownst to me. It was a Saturday night about 1130. And it was the only time I could get in there where the business was closed and get the work done. And he stopped on his way back from dinner with his wife and told me to come out to breakfast with him the next morning. And at that time, uh, he offered to buy into my business 50% and he offered me a $50,000 check and I slid it back to him and said, if, if, if I take that and cash it now, I probably will blow all that money. I'll, I'll be your partner, but you keep the money. <laughs> and uh, we ended up forming a partnership and that lasted uh, close to five years. So it sounds like things were, were going pretty well for you at, at that point in time. Yeah, they were. And um, What year was this, this, this range? 
Uh, it was in 2000, it would have been late 2003, early 2004, that we uh, that I started working for him. I, I want to say it was mid-2004 or early 2005 that we actually formed the LLC, which would be been Aaron Striping LLC. And we worked up until close to 2009. So what happened in 2009 that uh, put an end to that? I went through a divorce and I had sold uh, my portion of the company to him as a means to kind of protect it from my my divorce uh, because I had built the company and done all the work to the company uh, prior to getting involved with my wife. And I felt that um, rightfully so that wasn't hers. And anyways, I'd sold him my portion and he ended up selling to another company uh, out of Rawlings and Rock Springs, Wyoming, that bought interest in the, the shares that I sold. So my intention to be able to buy the business back kind of went down the drain, and my marriage went down the drain as well. Um, and I ended up letting uh, one of my siblings come live with me who was uh, going through some problems in his own life. And uh, with his, his substance abuse has been constant, and by bringing him around me at that time in my life was uh, a real bad decision on my part uh, just because of the, the vulnerability I was facing. And, I, and I've realized this pattern over time that extreme uh, failures or disappointments in my life, I've always reverted back to. And I, and I didn't start noticing this pattern until this last conviction. And anyways, with just losing my marriage, losing my business, having you know five employees year-round, to a plate full of responsibilities to nothing, uh, it was it was so easy to go right back into using. I remember the first time that I'd started using again after my wife had left, and I, I was there at the house with my with my sibling, and I had almost audible alarms going off in my head, like "What are you doing? What are you doing?" And from that point, it was just a matter of time that I was reconsumed, and uh, things were no different than they were before. Yeah, I was going to say, but before you did, um, I was. Uh, it's it's clear that yeah, every time it seems like that you know you lose something that's uh, that you care about, losing your ability to race when, when you were younger, and then losing your business, losing your marriage is, is setting you was uh, you know setting you down that path to to make the same decisions and, and the path to addiction. And I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Johan Hari. Um, I've had him on this podcast before. He wrote his first book was called Chasing the Scream, which was about the war on drugs, but also talked a lot about addiction and depression. Then his last book, uh, Lost Connections, is entirely about depression. And what he talks about is, I mean, a, a lot of the times, you know, when people think of drugs, they think, you know, what causes heroin addiction? Heroin. What causes cocaine addiction? Cocaine. What causes alcohol addiction? Alcohol. And that's not that's not true, really. I mean, that's not to say there's not chemical triggers in your brain that you can become addicted to, but most of the time there's some sort of event or something in your life, or you get in a rut that that triggers you to to seek that out as a uh, as as a way to cope. Obviously, not a uh, a good way to cope, but um, there is a a logical reason why why, why that happens. Um, it's not the it's not as we were taught growing up, um, at least this is what I remember being taught, 
you know, if somebody gives you a drug and you take it, you're going to become addicted to it. Um, there, had, there has to be some other circumstances a, a lot of the time. Right. I 100% agree. I don't, I don't believe the actual substance or chemical is the root. I believe it's issues going on psychologically that are the basis of why, you know, using is the end act of that root problem. Absolutely. Um, so just, just want to uh, retrace our steps here for a minute, uh, make sure I have everything right. You end up losing the company. So you, you sold half the company to keep it away or to protect it from the divorce proceedings. Was there any sort of agreement that was signed or did, did you have even a handshake agreement with the guy that you were going to be able to buy it back? No, I had actually, um, I had sold it just on good faith terms and then eventually uh, I was kind of more or less uh, encouraged to sign a no compete contract and he was going to buy me out the rest of the way. And at that time, it, I'd already went so far off the other edge, I just signed it and kind of chalked up my losses and took the money because um, I'd already kind of went over the edge. And at that point, I, I believe that he had hindsight and seen what was kind of happening with me and he didn't want no part of that you know, convoluting the business that he had had uh, set up, nor the one uh, investment that he was included in my business. Hey guys, let's take a quick moment to hear from our sponsor for today's show. Of course, today's show is sponsored by RDAP Dan, Prison Consultants. And as I've documented many times on this show, sometimes, in fact, often, most of the time, even good people go to prison. And facing a federal case is an extremely stressful time. If you're facing this reality, then you need to contact Dan Wise, also known as RDAP Dan. RDAP Dan on YouTube. He has a great YouTube channel. Check that out. Dan and his team of prison consultants, I promise you, they will reduce your stress levels immediately upon speaking with them. You can call Dan and his team at any time. He will give you and your loved ones open access to support and answers. Now, Dan and his team will assist you with the following aspects of the process. Narrative letters to the judge, character reference letters, RDAP qualifications, prison designation, online reputation management, mindset coaching, and additional halfway house time. Don't sleep on this one, guys. You can find out more and schedule a free consultation with Dan and his team by visiting lionsofliberty.com slash RDAP. That's lionsofliberty.com slash R-D-A-P. And also on that page, I will have links and one of Dan's YouTube videos on that page. You can check it out. Dan has an outstanding YouTube channel with tons of information on the prison system. So I really encourage you to check that out. Yeah. Uh, so what happened What happened from there after you, you lose the business? What was the next thing that happened in your life? Uh, the next was I started, uh, I kind of met a few different people and uh, that were involved in drug trafficking and started trafficking drugs. Um, I did that for about close to two years. And then um, during that time, I got caught with possession um, in Idaho and uh, posted bail on that and um, kept doing what I was doing. And eventually in 2010 and 11, I kind of, I went on a, basically a crime spree. What led up between 2009 and 2010, uh, in the middle of 2010 is when they convict, when I got convicted. And that was um, for 23 months. And I was released, uh, or excuse me, yeah, 
18 months. And then I was released in 2012. So the, the crime spree, was, was that to feed your addiction? Yes. How much time did you serve then after, after that conviction? There was 18 months. So what they did is they gave me a global resolution and um, took my prior felony point and then just combined all of the, the new charges to run uh, consecutive or I mean concurrent to each other. So basically I got the most time allotted for the most stringent charge and then everything else just ran concurrently with that charge. Okay. And what was, what was that experience in, uh, in prison like? Because at this point you're in a different state, right? No, no, no. They, that was, uh, that was still, that charge had, I'd been posting bond and, uh, that case didn't actually get resolved till I was in federal prison. Um, so, uh, basically this was just in the state of Washington and that kind of went on hold. And, okay. uh, so after I was done with my state time, uh, they sent me over to Idaho on a fugitive of justice warrant, and then they released me from there on uh, three years probation to not get in any more trouble, do not enter their state and commit any more crimes, and then it would go away. Well, in December of 2012, I was indicted, and I made contact with the courts over there and um, explained what had happened and wrote an amendment to them, and they just dismissed the case. They just dismissed the case. Yeah, all the all the fines had been paid, and as far as the restitution, so um, I, I guess I dismiss would be the wrong word. They kind of concluded it and called it a closed case. So they didn't. They just kind of washed their hands of the whole ordeal. Wow, <laughs> you, don't, you don't hear that happen too often. No. Um. So you mentioned a, a federal case. Yes. Yeah, so in two thousand. 12, December 17th, I was uh, indicted for conspiracy and aiding and abetting bank fraud. Um, now, from the time I was released from prison, I was trying to get my life resituated, and uh, I had got I was gifted some property in the house that I had purchased prior to uh, selling my business. I, I was moving out there, so I was in the middle of this project, and uh, was coming to the conclusion I just got my occupancy for the house to be able to move into it. Everything was set and ready to go, and uh, a day after that, the feds indicted me. Uh, they raided the house, raided my uncle's house, looking for uh, anything that would uh, prove guilt in the acts of, you know, conspiracy and aiding and abetting bank fraud. Nothing was found, and uh, this case had stemmed from what I was doing in 2009. So, 2010, 2011, I was in prison, and this ca case by the feds was still ongoing, and. Um, from what I've seen, my, my discovery was uh, 6,995 pages long uh, and six CDs of different photographs that they'd had. There was 31 people implicated. They put me as uh, the lead, so I got an enhancement for leadership on it, and it was all based on hearsay. There was no factual evidence whatsoever in the whole discovery. So all in all that paperwork, I read it page by page. There was no actual physical evidence of it at all. So I ended up serving 48 months on that. So that was your longest prison sentence then, or longest time served. Yes. Is that right? And it was on a completely bullshit charge. Yep. That's crazy, but that, that's what the feds do. That's what uh, the, the federal prosecutors do is they bring in, you said there were 31. 
Yeah, and what's with the the irony that I faced with that is they had put one of my co-defendants in the same pod as me who wrote a co-defendant. Now, in my his, in my history of being around that, they don't put co-defendants together. They they keep a separatist on them for that reason. And um, we had went to court together, and my dad had died on Sunday, and um, this was September 13th, and we went to court Monday, and I just told him, I said, hey, I know you wrote a statement. And the the stuff that he had wrote him and this other girl had went in and uh, before we even got indicted and made this fairy tale made made this whole organization out to be some kind of like uh, something that you'd see in the movies, which is so far from the, the actual truth. It was drug addicts seeking to get a fix. We weren't funneling money to nowhere. It was nothing like that. So um, I just asked him. I said, "Hey, recant your statement and tell the truth. I can't sit here from my position and tell you." to lie and I don't want you to lie I just want you to tell the truth because if he told the truth then it, it alleviates me from having to explain that he's lying and uh, he went and told the prosecutor that and when they brought him back out they put him over in the girls holding cell next to me and I couldn't understand why and I kept asking him, what's going on and they transported him back to the jail and left us at the, the federal holding facility and once I got back he was transferred out of the pod and then I had a lawyer visit about 6.30, which my lawyer never came after hours. And he slid me a piece of paper. He kind of yelled at me at first, asked me what I was thinking. And then he said, hey, if you take this to trial, they're going to hit you with a five-year uh, tampering with a federal witness enhancement on top of what you're already getting. And at that time, I said, okay, fine. Let's just sign the plea deal and let's go. So I didn't want to challenge it. From what I've read and what I've heard, I didn't want to challenge him. So that was tampering because he was working for them, trying to get you to admit some, trying to get information. Yes, or something. since he was one of the codependents who had made a statement against me, um, he was on their team and therefore tampering with a federal witness. So by asking him to tell the truth, that's tampering with a federal yep. witness. That is, uh, that's unbelievable. What's not? I mean, it's not unbelievable in the system we have, just in a uh, rational society. If we had that, that's it's unbelievable. All right. Um, so you spend 48 months in prison, um, the federal prison. Where did you serve your time for that? I did my time at Sheridan FCI in Sheridan, Oregon. And was was that a lot different than your time in state prison? The same? What, what was what was that like? It was a lot different. The, the respect level is far greater than in the state. The caliber of people that you're dealing with are a lot different in the feds. More so, you have people that came from professions and um, people that were doing things for larger amounts of money. So their lifestyles were different. Um, Where in the state prison, you kind of get the slum of everything. Um, In the feds, it's it's a little bit different than that. You know, you got people from judges, lawyers, doctors, um, all sorts of different caliber of inmate, so to speak. Okay. Your story is is incredible with 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 everything you've been through and trying to pinpoint because we're going to talk about you know everything you've done now in, in the recent years success you've had. At, at what point in this this latter stage after this uh, federal prison sentence? At what point did you or was it before that um, where you turned a corner or where you had an epiphany or you know s- something triggered that uh, you know you understood what you needed to do in order to uh, really have success after prison? 
Um, I think I had a, an awakening moment when my dad passed away and I realized how helpless I was and um, that I couldn't do that. last thing my dad said to me um, on a phone conversation we had is he says, why can't you go back to living a normal life like you were before? And that stuck with me. And so I started doing a chemical dependency um, through correspondence. It was a course through correspondence to become a chemical dependency counselor through Stratford Career Institute. And I started out while I was incarcerated at the at the county jail. And uh, I went into this program called the God Pod in Yakima. And it's basically you wake up early in the morning and you go through a daily program and it's lights out at nine o'clock. And it, and it really functions kind of like you would in society. And I, I stayed in that program for a little over a year while I was there fighting my case um, and awaiting to, to go to the federal institution. And I completed that course. And once I got into the federal facility, I did the same thing there. I got involved into where I was working um, at Unicor. I did a paralegal correspondence course in the evening time and then in the morning time, I went to the Chemeketa Community College for a Microsoft Business Software Certification. And um, there's kind of two things I was telling RDAP Dan about this is while I was in that program uh, for school, you had to have a 12-month commitment. So uh, I actually signed out of RDAP and basically stayed in prison three months longer than what I had to because I wanted to get that certification. You, you have that free education at your fingertips to come out here and try to do FAFSA and get involved. And then also you have all the other things of life that are going on. When in there, I had nothing but focus on it. So I figured that that was worth the stay three extra months to get that taken care of. And um, I pretty much developed my life on a routine. So I would get up, go work out, go to, go to school, go to work, come home, do my correspondence work. And then I completed that same cycle when I got out and it's paid off for me. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's common for, I think people in all walks of life is finding that routine, finding that rhythm. I mean, it helps tremendously. You know, the big thing now people talk about is, is morning routines and getting, you know, getting a system where you, you're doing the same thing every morning. But you mentioned RDAP Dan, um, did you guys, um, I thought I heard during your interview with him that you guys actually... Were you in the same prison at the same time? No, we were in the same halfway house uh, there in Spokane at the same time. And uh, we, we kind of befriended each other just because we had similar mindsets and kind of like people, attract like people. And uh, we would work out together and uh, go on our passes together and kind of worked out back there at the halfway house together as well. And we were in the same group. So uh, we kind of started our friendship there and it just kind of it carried on to where it is now. Okay, cool. So you've uh, you're out of prison. You've really you know developed a system where you're able to uh, you know start to maximize your life, uh, you know self actualize your life in, uh, down a better path. How did you get, or what motivated you to want to become a firefighter? Because you know, me personally, I, I look up to firefighters. I think it, you know, I think it is it's it's. It's obviously a, ta- a, uh, a job that needs to be done. It's awesome. I think firefighters are great. But personally, I'm not crazy about running into a burning building. So I'm just, <laughs> just curious what, uh, what motivated you to go down that path. Um, well, I was working for the city of Kennewick, and 
I had from the time that I got out, I kept searching for uh, can felons become firefighters. And at that time, I had no idea about the wildland aspect of firefighting. I was so focused on structure. And um, after about six, maybe seven months into searching online, I came home from work one day, got on the computer, and I happened to find a news clip from a fire department on the west side of the state where I live. And I Googled their names. I contacted the chief. I came over and did a ride along. And I could tell that he was kind of unsure about me because, I mean, I'm covered in tattoos from my fingers to my neck and all the way down to the tips of my toes. And uh, anyways, he was kind of unsure. And, and I told him, hey, this is what I want to do. And he set out the guidelines of what I needed to do. And I did that and went above and beyond that and did a couple more classes that um, were required additionally if you wanted to keep going and um, he went ahead and gave me a start date and I went over I started May 15th of last year and I lived at the station during the season and uh, was deployed right from there and then I would run regular EMS calls and everything that was in our coverage area and uh, it just kind of slowly progressed into a better thing as time went on and I ended up um, being able to do the fire academy for the structure side. So I was only doing wildland firefighting, and okay. um, I would respond as basically an EMS assistant just to help on aid calls. And then I, I'm doing the fire academy now for the structure side, and I'm also in EMT school right now as well. So um, going into this next season, it'll be uh, I'll be able to function as a fully qualified firefighter. Well, that's awesome. So, d- did you get any uh, any experience fighting uh, wildfires, or was that? Oh yeah, absolutely. We were deployed pretty much all summer, and then at the end, we got a request from California from Cal Fire to assist them on their fires in Napa Valley and Santa Cruz. So, um, we went down there on a, a Type One structure team and uh, basically did structure protection and kind of mop up for them. So what's your, uh, do you have a really intense uh, firefighting story you can share? Um, yeah, we had a near miss and we were on a, a military firing range called the Yakima Training Center. And uh, our engines were holding a line and a DC-110 had just done a retardant drop on the other side of the road and kind of splattered us with retardant is how close they were. And the fire, uh, the wind was pushing at the head of the fire, so it was kind of keeping it at bay. And we had a direct wind shift, and that fire went from being 120 feet away from us to right on top of us. And I was inside the engine, and my uh, my engine lead was behind on the hose, and then the other uh, engine mate was at the front. He ran around to the, the passenger side, and I went to put it in reverse, and I, I got to thinking, okay, well, I got a firefighter that I don't know where he's at. He could either be behind me or out of the way, so... Uh, I had flames hitting my window and going over the cab of the truck, and I could wow. I couldn't see nothing. Was com- we were completely blacked out, and just about that time, uh, one of the guys opened the door and asked if I was all right, and I told him yeah. And then um, I just happened to look back in the mirror and seeing my engine lead on the ground with the hose on, spraying the head of the fire and kind of got it knocked down, uh, and then we were able to get out of there. So. Uh, it was an intense moment for me. I, uh, definitely glad I didn't back up and kind of use critical thinking at that time. How how hot is it? Uh, I could feel it 
on the glass where I had to hold my head away from the glass. It was it was blistering hot. It was it was quick and it was fast. It seemed like it lasted forever, but I think the whole um, burnover or flashover, I guess you could call it, lasted probably less than a minute. So that kind of singed our stickers and melted our reflectors, and I had a bag up on top that it, it torched and a, and a line pack on the door that it, it torched pretty good. But yeah, we all walked is, away. Uh, I'll tell you what, man. I give you uh, tremendous credit for, for doing that, and that is that's a vital, vital job. I mean, especially out, out where you guys are. That's, uh, you know, I, I guess I guess it varies pretty – it can vary from, from year to year. Some years are worse than others. Was – it seemed like this past year was particularly worse. Is that true, or is that just that with today's media, everything's magnified? No, we had a, we had a, a real heavy fire season last year. The, the original uh, forecast for the season is we were going to have a mild uh, fire season because the snowpack at the tips of the mountains was pretty deep still, and that wasn't the case. It was completely 180 from that. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's a crazy line of work. And I, I think it's interesting that, you know, it seems like through, throughout your life from, uh, you know, from racing bikes as a kid to, uh, you know, starting working in, uh, in asphalt work and then realizing, t- willing to take a risk, starting your own business, um, and then now firefighting, you know, it seems like the personality you have is sort of all in, right? Yeah. Finding, finding careers where you can really stretch yourself. So... I think, I mean, I think that's, that's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, I think it's for people listening to this, you know, there's probably people out there listening to this, uh, this show that maybe they're struggling with addiction. Maybe they have a loved one who's struggling with addiction. And I think it's fantastic, um, to have you come on and be able to share about everything you've been through the ups and the downs and to see where you are today. Uh, I just want to give you a tremendous credit for that. Thanks. I appreciate it. I, uh, I have one more thing that, uh, just kind of bestow upon some people is, uh, I was recently accepted to the, the Cowlitz County dive rescue team. And it's, it's operated underneath the, the sheriff's department here in Cowlitz County. And, um, they weren't going to accept me at first. And then after kind of bugging them and bugging them, and bugging them, they, they finally accepted me since I was already a member of the department of emergency management through the fire district. And uh, I went on my first mission with them a few days ago, recovering a boat and then some evidence. So, and uh, each one of those guys that I went out with, um, you know, they know my history and they haven't uh, judged me what one bit whatsoever. And uh, it's kind of refreshing to think that, you know, there are people out there that if you prove that you've changed and you have the evidence and your actions show it, because actions speak louder than any words can. And, uh, I think for the most part, people people accept that change. Um, of course, there are people that you run into that don't care either way. Uh, and then you run into those people that do, and those are the ones that matter. I think that's great advice, Aaron. And I want to thank you so much for coming on Felony Friday to share your story. Yes, thanks for having me. Thank you guys for listening to today's show. Just another, another incredible story. I know I feel like I say that every single week, but man. Aaron Gunter, this guy, you know, and, and I really didn't know a whole lot about Aaron going in. I did see um, an interview with him. Actually, I should say I watched part of an interview with him and, and Dan Wise. I didn't want to watch the whole thing because I wanted to be taken, you know, taken by surprise by what Aaron said. I, I knew a little bit about his background, but 
You know, I think one of the things about interviewing in these situations that helps is to not know everything because then then I'm digging and then I'm listening too, just as you are, and hopefully I'm asking some of the questions that you would be asking um, when you're listening because I don't know all the answers already, so I, I'm, uh, I'm forced to ask. I thought it was really um, interesting to see really the, the pattern in Aaron's life. You know, he would have something bad happen to him, be it the, uh, the accident he had on the bike where he wasn't able to race anymore or where he was divorced and lost his company. Um, there were things that, that set him off, that set him into a downward spiral, and that's when his addiction set back in. It's just amazing to see everything that Aaron has been through, where he's at today, really putting his life on the line, fighting fires. You know, obviously he's getting paid, but to do a job like that, that is a selfless act in itself, being a firefighter, I believe so, because you cannot be fully compensated for the risk that you're putting yourself under. It's it's just uh it's just not there. You're just not going to be compensated compensated to that level. And I think he has a really great perspective on it. He feels like, you know, he kind of owes it to society. I think that's just incredible. I want to thank Aaron for coming on. That was tremendous. And of course I want to encourage everyone, I'll link to it on the show notes page. Definitely check out his interview with uh Dan Wise as well. And also, you know, check out Dan Wise's YouTube channel, the rest of his interviews. So they're all fantastic. I know I keep promoting it, but, you know, I only promote stuff that that I enjoy myself. So, guys, I'm not going to keep you long today. I don't really have a lot to talk about. You know, I actually, uh, I got to be getting to sleep here soon. I'm recording this on Wednesday night, actually. Got a big day in front of me tomorrow. I got a lot of stuff I got to get ready for. I'm going um, in Pennsylvania. It's our Libertarian Party convention in Shippensburg, PA this Saturday. So I got a ton of stuff to do to get lined up for that. I'm excited. This is my first Libertarian Party event. I know, you know, we, we trashed the Libertarian Party a little bit on this podcast. Not so much me, more so the other guys. Um, the way I look at it is the Libertarian Party, it is what you make it. If you have a problem with the people in the party, you got a problem with leadership, then um, do something about it. Um, you can bitch about it. You can whine about it, but it's not going to change anything. It just won't. These are the uh, the facts of life here. So I just want to thank you guys again for, I want to thank those of you who have joined the Pride as well. We have seen an uptick in, uh, in February also, and we are getting, we are inching closer to that uh, $1,000 per month level that's going to get us to Porkfest. We're over 900 now. just want to encourage you. Any level you can join at is greatly appreciated. I will just highlight the $15 level because we've, that's been a lot of people joining lately have been joining at 15 and 15 does get you a t-shirt, a koozie, all of the bonus content that we pump out here. And it's a lot. And the daily or the uh, Monday through Friday weekly news links that we send out, which is going to give you, it's broken into categories, going to give you news links uh, pertaining to liberty, foreign policy, politics, a uh, mainstream media category, a cryptocurrency category, and I always probably forget one or two, but you know, I've uh, I've been helping to put these together. Howie Snowden curates these. I don't know how he has the time to find all this news. He's I don't know. He's not human. I've been helping to sort them into the different categories, and uh, man, I'll tell you what, it's the best news. You know, I think it's really 
and it's not all libertarian, but um, you know, we do get most of the uh, the, the liberty related stories, and you know, you could call it a, a libertarian drudge type email. So definitely think about checking that out, lionsofliberty.com slash support. Of course, you can join five, ten, twenty-five. We have one more spot at a hundred, so consider that. That's all I got. If you're not in our Facebook forum, join the Facebook forum. Why would you not be in the Facebook forum group? Go online to Facebook, type Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top, and we'll get you in right away. Great conversations every day. That rhyme. That's all I got for today. Thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>